Unfortunately, only about 1 in 10 older adults with cancer who have a known functional limitation receive a referral to OT or PT. Even fewer make it to an eval and still fewer complete their full course of rehab. Why are we failing to support such a large percentage of this population? And what is the best way to support them when they do make it to an occupational therapist? Today on the podcast, we are looking at a randomized control trial about OT and PT for older adults with cancer. And honestly, the results are just not what we hope to see. The OT-PT provided did not improve functional deficits or even help just maintain functional status for these patients. And instead of giving us ideas of how to improve the barriers to receiving OT care, the article just really seems to reinforce the obstacles. Luckily, though, this is not the full story. After we break down the article, we will be joined on the podcast by the lead author, Mackenzie Pergolotti, PhD, MS, OTRL. Mackenzie will share how this paper changed the course of her career by spurring her to further research the service delivery models that do open the doors for more patients and ultimately points us to these improved outcomes that we all strive for. So let's dive in. Welcome to the OT Potential Podcast, where we review new and influential OT journal articles, then invite on an expert guest to help us pull out actionable takeaways that you can implement in your practice starting today. Welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Lyon, OTRL. And before we dive into this big topic of cancer rehab for older adults, I wanted to let you know that this podcast may qualify as continuing education for you. You are probably listening to this podcast on a free podcast platform, but to gain CEU credit, you will need to be a member of the OT Potential Club, our OT evidence-based practice platform. Once you sign up for the club, you can log in to take a test and we will generate a certificate for your time today. So bearing in mind that this could count as a continuing education course, I wanted to state our two learning objectives so you can be thinking about them throughout the podcast today. Our first learning objective is you will be able to identify barriers to service delivery in cancer rehab. And our second is you will be able to recognize the foundations of effective cancer rehab as we now understand them. So let's begin by looking at our journal article, and then we'll bring Mackenzie on to discuss how this research can play out in your practice. The article that we are looking at today is called Older Adults with Cancer, colon, a randomized control trial of occupational and physical therapy. It was published in the Journal of the American Geriatric Society in the year 2019, and it is ranked 97th on our list of the 100 most influential OT journal articles. So the article begins with this big picture introduction to older adults with cancer. And thanks to improvement in early detection and treatments, the number of cancer survivors has grown steadily in recent years. But these survivors often have multiple impairments to manage. These include increased pain, lymphedema, neuropathy, chronic fatigue, and cognitive decline. One study that they cite indicated that at least 50% of cancer survivors need help with at least one ADL, and additionally, 75% need help with one or more IADLs. 
which of course brings to mind the need for rehab in the article, then goes into this introduction to cancer rehab. So even when cancer patients have a known functional limitation, OT and PT are generally underutilized. In fact, less than 9 to 15% of these patients receive a referral. Without skilled therapy intervention, the many challenges experienced by this population can lead to a decreased quality of life. Potential barriers to OTPT referral include lack of patient awareness of rehab options, lack of provider awareness of OTPT options, and research gaps. In fact, up to this publication, there had been no trials examining the efficacy of outpatient OTPT services for older adults with cancer, which leads us into the purpose of this paper. The primary aim of this study was to determine if outpatient cancer rehab could maintain or improve functional status for older adults. The secondary goal was to assess the intervention and control groups to identify differences in quality of life and possibilities for activity, i.e. activity expectations and self-efficacy. So what were their methods? This was a two-arm, single-institution, randomized controlled trial. Patients were randomized into an intervention group and a control group. Assessments were completed before rehab and around three months later. So looking at the participants, the participants were eligible if they were Medicare beneficiaries age 65 or older, seen for an appointment in the university's outpatient cancer clinic, diagnosed with or had a cancer recurrence within the last five years, and finally, determined by geriatric assessment to have at least one functional need for rehab. Eligible impairments included decreased cognition, decreased function and or physical health status, and a report of previous falls. So for the intervention group, a PT and or OT plan of care was developed in collaboration with the patient. Treating therapists determined the frequency and duration, and the OT provided in this intervention group focused on improving each patient's function in ADLs and IADLs. And I should also note that OTs and PTs who were involved completed an hour of training in person on cancer rehab with follow-up phone calls to support intervention as needed. In the usual care group, participants in this group were given a brochure outlining services available at the cancer center. They were not restricted from pursuing OT or PT, but they were also not given additional supports to do so. The assessments that were used at baseline and post-assessment were the Nottingham Extended Activities of Daily Living Assessment, a Global Health Quality of Life Promise Measure, which had two subsections, Global Mental Health and Global Physical Health, a physical function promise measure, the ability to participate in social roles and activities, also a promise measure, and the possibilities for activities scale, which has subdomains of activity self-efficacy and activity expectations. So what were the results of this study? Due to recruitment difficulties, the program had only 63 participants. The goal had been to have 82. So 32 participants were randomized into the intervention group, but only 19 of these 32 accessed OTRPT and provided follow-up data. Seven patients were lost to follow-up, four received some OTPT but then were lost to follow-up, and three did not receive intervention due to hospitalization or illness. Additional reasons given for not receiving the intervention were too busy, too costly, too far from home. 
For the 19 participants who were seen by an OT or PT and who provided follow-up data, the number of sessions ranged from one session to 12. Six patients, or 31% of this cohort, were only seen once for an eval and then were discharged right away. Of the seven individuals who started PTOT but then dropped out, they gave the following reasons. Not seeing value, becoming too ill, too busy, and too costly. And then within the usual care group, no patients received PT or OT. So as you can tell from that little section, the authors were not getting all the data that they hoped for. But looking at the data that they did get, at the post-assessment, there was a clinically and statistically significant decline in functional status in both groups, as measured by that Nottingham Extended Activities of Daily Living Scale. In the secondary data that they were gathering, there was a significant improvement in the possibilities for activity scale scores for participants in the intervention group. The intervention group also reported clinical improvement on the following two promise measures, but the improvement did not meet the requirements for statistical significance. And those measures were the ability to participate in social roles and activities and global mental health. So moving into the discussion, there are many lessons to be learned from this trial. Because of the difficulty with recruitment, as well as time and funding constraints, the authors were unable to achieve the desired number of participants. Basically, way more people declined to participate in the study than the authors had anticipated. This reflects real-world issues such as valid patient concerns about cancer care costs, lack of awareness around the potential benefit of rehab, and poor integration of rehab services into cancer care. Those seeking to build OTPT programs and create studies must consider how to get past this initial barrier of fostering interest and willingness to participate in cancer rehab. People who did express interest in the study faced perhaps the biggest barrier of all, which was obtaining a provider referral to OTPT in a timely manner. Some patients had to wait over a month for this request to be met, even with support from the study administrators. This delay caused some patients to lose interest in pursuing rehab. Furthermore, those who actually made it to an eval faced yet another barrier. Rehab clinicians did not seem prepared to meet the chronic care needs of this complex population. Given that the patients had to have a documented functional limitation to be eligible for the study, it was very surprising that about a third of them only had an eval before being discharged. The silver lining of the study was the improvement in activity self-efficacy and expectations. This aligned with past research showing that OT reduced stress and increased a sense of control for adults with cancer. So what are the implications for the future? There are multiple implications for both research and practice. The authors propose the following possibilities for the future. Conducting a cost-benefit analysis for cancer rehab, integrating rehabilitation teams into cancer care, engaging case managers and patient navigators to assist in the referral and appointment process, and providing comprehensive therapist training and perhaps even cancer rehab certification. And then finally, studying the potential to add caregivers as part of the family-centered practice and intervention. So in the final conclusion, the authors shared that although cancer rehab showed promise in the way of improvements to self-efficacy and activity expectations, continued research is needed to break down barriers, build on this trial, and demonstrate the value of this care path. 
There is so much to sit with and reflect on from this trial. Honestly, it's disappointing when we see just a beautifully designed rehab program that just does not have an impact on the primary outcome measures like we would hope to see. But like I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, this was a 2019 study. So we actually have the benefit of hearing from the lead author about how she processed this paper and how this spurred her forward in her research career. I think you'll leave this podcast just feeling the weight of the need in this population, but also the hope and the call to action that there are things that we can be doing. So it is just my pleasure to introduce you to Dr. Mackenzie Pergolotti. Dr. Pergolotti is a Senior Director of Research and Clinical Development for Revital Cancer Rehabilitation, Adjunct Professor at Colorado State University and the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. As an occupational therapist, Dr. Pergolotti worked at the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, developing programs aimed to better address the needs of adults and children with cancer. Considering the impact of cancer rehabilitation, she was driven to build the evidence base and increase access to cancer rehabilitation programs nationwide. Dr. Pergolotti was trained at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, where she worked collaboratively with researchers from the Cecil G. Sheps Center for Health Services Research, the Gilling School of Global Public Health, and the Department of Health Policy and Management, and the Cancer Research Outcomes Group, and the Geriatric Oncology Program at the Lineberger Comprehensive Cancer Center to look at utilization, access to, and the quality of cancer rehabilitation. Dr. Pergolotti is well-published in cancer rehabilitation with over 40 peer-reviewed manuscripts. She is also the co-lead of the ACRM Cancer and Research Networking Group, Research and Outcomes, and Dr. Pergolotti leads and oversees the strategy and implementation of research, education, and quality for the Revital Cancer Rehabilitation Program. So without further ado, I will patch Dr. Pergolotti into this podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Mackenzie. It's great to have you. Thank you so much. I'm honored to be here. I have... Just so been looking forward to this conversation. You're actually one of the first researchers that I ever followed on Google Scholar. I like have an alert set for you. I think really early in the club, I reviewed one of your papers. That was before I was doing the podcast with each review. So mm -hmm. I think I found you then and then have just been following you for like four years. And I've been amazed at how consistently you're digging into these questions about cancer rehab and best practices for us. And so it's just such an honor to have you here today. But thank you so much. It's just something I'm really driven to do and, and to talk about. And I've also had some great teams to work with. So that are that are interested mm -hmm. in digging into this with me. So but thank you. Yeah, I'm so excited to talk about this paper and just what you've been learning. But before we get there, I really want to go back and hear your origin story a little bit and just hear about how you first found OT. So, you know, I actually was in physical therapy school initially, and I really wanted to be a physical therapist for a professional soccer team. Was my dream. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, I was very specific. I loved playing soccer. I had a huge injury at in my senior year of high school. And so moving beyond that in terms of soccer, I knew was was not an option, but I, I wanted to be a part of the, the game. And so I ended up going to school for physical therapy. And it wasn't until possibly it was my third year. And I was in a bachelor's master's program. And um, 
I just started to feel like it wasn't the best fit for me. Like it was really close, mm. but I like I just couldn't put my finger on it. And my parents owned a small store in Fredonia, New York, and I was working there during Christmas break. And this woman came in out of like it was like just a unique experience. She came in and I was at the desk. And she started to talk to me and talk to my mom and. Come to find out she was an occupational therapist and had this unique business that was this really holistic group that saw children, all adults. And, and she invited me during break, like, come and see what we do. And I, I got to sit down and there were a number of OTs there that were in PT school and had switched and why. And, and it was just one of those moments in your life where, you know, a door opens and you find, oh, this is the path I'm supposed to be on. And so that's, I called my school right after that and switched majors. And I think I took 24 credits to catch up that next semester or something <laughs> insane. But as soon as I got into the program and took that first class, I was like, oh, this, this is me. So, and this is a great fit. And there, you know, the rest is history. That is like a Hallmark movie and an <laughs> OT angel <laughs> came to visit you. I know. What are the and I was like all over the place and what I thought I was going to oh where goodness. I was going to go. And yeah. Yeah. So I was wow. very thankful for her. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what a unique start. Okay. So you find OT in this Hallmark movie way. Tell me about finding cancer rehab within yeah. OT. So it's within the same story, really. Like, so right after I started OT, one of my mentors, Barbara Thompson, who is a professor, I think she just retired from Russell. I went to Russell Sage in Troy, New York. And she just, I was definitely drawn to her and her philosophy. She, she taught expressive arts, which is like a arts without any rules or boundaries. So you just... Mm you use any modality in any way to express yourself and it's a way to uh, improve wellness and quality of life. And she was starting an expressive arts program at the Ronald McDonald house and was asking who wanted to do that for their master's thesis. And I just jumped at the opportunity. I was like, this, I, this is what I want to do. And within that first experience of working with those children, I had moved from, professional soccer to children with cancer, like <laughs> within like six months. And I it was just such a good fit. And I, I loved it. I love the expressive arts that we did. I, I loved working with the children. And that's when I knew I wanted to do cancer rehab for, for my career. That does not sound like the beginning of a research career no. to me. It sounds like you were on your way to be yes. um, like an expressive arts OT how mm -hmm. did the pivot into research happen then? Yeah, so I started as an OT in the traditional hospital setting, did inpatient, in, you know, where you do the rotation, inpatient, outpatient, in, you know, rehab, mm -hmm. et cetera. And in that setting, I found myself trying to find the people with cancer. Like, I'll take that referral. I'll take that one. Children, adults, mm -hmm. it didn't matter. As soon as, you know, my husband, who was my boyfriend at the time, him and I decided to move to New York City. And a position became available at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. And I cold called them. And I just said, mm. hey, like, I want to work here. I want to see this population, like, only. This is what I want to do. Here's what I've done, whatever. And within, gosh, it was like a week or two I started. And I was treating children and adults at the time. I couldn't decide. I loved them both. 
And anyway, it was in that where I started to develop the pediatric program at Memorial. So before then, they had, you know, every once in a while, the therapist would see a child with cancer, and it would be cases where it was really obvious that they needed our care, like they had a hemipelvectomy or something super traumatic or big. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to provide care to a lot more of the children more consistently in inpatient and outpatient. And as I was developing this program, the head doc sat me down and said, you really got to write this up and you got to tell people what you're doing. And I looked at him and I was like, no, I'm just going to do it. <laughs> I, <was> so, <laughs> I was so intimidated by the thought of writing it up as a research article. And, and I did start to write it up. I did an abstract on a, um, we created these helmets for people that had part of their skull removed for a short period of time. And the options were a bike helmet. And my colleagues and I were like, we can do better than that. And so we made these cool helmets that could fit in like a knit cap or a baseball cap. So they wouldn't feel, they could walk the city streets and still feel like they fit in. So we started to write that up and I was still like, I don't know. I just, I don't know about this research thing. And well, so fast forward, forward in a number of years. I'm in North Carolina and I moved to North Carolina and I just had my daughter and I was deciding to go back to school or go back to being a manager in OT. And I'd always wanted to go back to school, but I didn't know exactly for what yet or how. And I got someone, a neighbor of mine really encouraged me to look at you and look at the program at UNC. It's it's a, it's a good solid program, you know, give it a whirl, check it out. So I, I did that and I really enjoyed it. But even then I went to signed up, got accepted, enrolled at UNC to, for their PhD program. And even then I was like, I'm here to teach and to spread the word of cancer rehab that way. <laughs> but like anything else, you know, it's, there's certain professors that can really shape someone's trajectory. And I had incredible professors there. I had an incredible statistics professor. And once I met him and I enjoyed his class, which was surprising to me, and I thought, huh, maybe I could do research. And then I got more and more confident. And, you know, and then by two years in, I was like, oh, I, I want to do research. So that was like, I just caught the bug and, and I mm. was going to continue on that path. So, but, but it, it took me a while to get there, but it was I think it was building skills and confidence that, that finally was like, okay, this, this, I can do this. Wow. You seem to have this really interesting combination of like determination, like I'm going cold call and work there, but also being open to the next thing, the next natural thing, even if you hadn't considered it before. Yeah. Yeah. That's mm -hmm. an interesting tension to walk and, yeah, just an incredible story and pathway to hear. So you take this incredible journey, you're in starting cancer research. Tell us about getting to this paper mm. and your, I don't know, your impressions now looking back on it. So, you know, what's interesting about what you said and reflecting on my past, I think once I make a decision, I'm pretty like, <laughs> driven in that direction. So yeah. <laughs> once I had figured out, okay, this is what I'm going to study. I was able, I, you know, I got through the PhD program pretty, pretty quickly. Cause I was like, this is, this is my direction. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. But I also was open to, as you had said, different opportunities. So I got a a pre-doctoral fellowship in health services research at UNC, which is in sort of like the School of Public Health, and then did a postdoc in cancer care quality training program, which is all about how do we measure the quality of cancer care we're delivering? How do we improve the quality of cancer care? And then did a postdoc in cancer outcomes. And so I learned a lot from others around me and took advantage of the UNC system in terms of all the different schools and the incredible community they have there. Mm -hmm. And it was during, so I had finished my dissertation and it was during my postdoc. I had a a great mentor, Dr. Bryce Reeve, and (laughs) I remember coming to him and I was like, so the first thing I, I had pitched for my postdoc was the paper I wrote called the potential it was potentially modifiable factors and what i looked there was finding if you look at a, a geriatric assessment which is quite functionally based and when we looked at that i saw my gosh these are all things rehab helps with i wonder and my assumption was that very few people actually got rehab because i saw it in real life once i moved to unc to north carolina and that's what we were able to find in that study which is that you know, out of, of, and I think you quoted, I quoted this in the beginning, and I saw that you wrote this too, is that of the, all the people we looked at, it was almost 600 patients, like 65% of them needed care, and only 9% actually got it. And then when it got cancer rehab, or got rehab in any way, and when we looked at those 9%, if you take out this really obvious, the lymphedema and hip fracture, it's really 2% of people, which is shocking, but that's the reality. And so once I had written that paper, I went to Bryce and I said, I've got, I've got this idea. I want to do a randomized control trial. We can use the geriatric assessment as a way to identify who needs care. And then I think we compare it to usual care, which is my control group, because we already know that people aren't getting the services they need. And he looked at me and he's like, a randomized control trial in your postdoc might be a little ambitious. <laughs> and, was, and he's like, I'll support you, whatever you want to do. But, um, you know, that's, that's a lot. And I was like, I know I got it. We're going to do, yeah. do it. I'm like driven. I've made my decision. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Come hell or high water. Here we, here we go. And they were cool that they, you know, they really just let me, let me do my thing. And so I set up the whole trial and, had some incredible teammates and collaborators that helped, but it was a labor of love for sure throughout the whole thing. And my sense was, or I look at it, I'm like, you designed such a great trial, doing all the best practices that we knew of at the time, and the results reflected what we see in the clinic. It's even in the best circumstances where you're providing additional support, it's hard to get people there. It's hard for them to stay in rehab once they start. And then the data about whether it helped wasn't compelling. Like, yeah. How do you yes. think about that now? And what did that mean to you at the time? Oh, at the time it was, it was painful. The whole thing was painful because, <laughs> and I like the reasoning is because as a clinician, I saw it work. I knew we could make a difference. I saw it in my colleagues. I saw it with my own patients. I really was shocked, 
honestly, that it didn't just all fall into, like naively, I think it didn't all just fall into place. Mm-hmm. And it's a huge undertaking in terms of there's a lot in, in any system, as people know, when you work there about getting approvals of multiple departments to agree to do something big or small is an undertaking and then getting the patients to agree. And one of the biggest problems we had right at the gate was I would talk people into going to cancer rehab and then we would randomize them and, you know, they're in the control group. (laughs) So (laughs) they would be like, well, that's not cool. I want to go. You talked me into going. You told me it was a good idea. (laughs) So (laughs) that was really hard for a lot of people. And so we ended up, not officially, but unofficially having people, we would help them get into rehab after the three months for the trial. So they just had to wait. And if their dog, if they really wanted to go, that didn't exclude them for the trial. It was just, but knowing how things go, very few did that. And, and some people we were able to get in afterwards. So that'd be one thing I would do differently in terms of I would have had it. So they would just have to wait to get in upfront instead of mm-hmm. just trying to explain that from the get-go. So it, in terms of enrollment, I think the other thing is that once they were enrolled and we had a referral, the wait time to get to see a clinician was over a month, you know, and it was the, tr- it's the traditional triage. It's not, nobody's a fault. It was just, they're complicated. They appear complicated on paper and it just sort of gets shuffled to the bottom and it was just the wait list would take forever even when we had buy-in and the therapists were there and whatnot and then I didn't do a good enough job training the therapist preparing them for seeing patients with cancer so I think that's something I would have done differently for sure I I really thought that it would just take a couple like an hour to a couple of lectures to give them a sense of what cancer is and what cancer treatment is. And that there's some, these, some types of impairments related and that they could go and figure it out. But it's, it's really a different mindset in outpatient mm-hmm. and you got to shift your mind. And once you shift your mindset, I think the skill sets are similar to treat, but it's not, you got to be thinking behind what's, what's happened to them and what's going to happen. And if you don't have that perspective, then I think a lot of people got missed. And that's why I think a third of people were eval DC on the first day, mm-hmm. unfortunately. And, and I think the last thing was not preparing the therapist for a better understanding of that bias, of the bias we have towards cancer survivors, that they're sick. They're unable to do things. You want to just like make mm. sure they're okay and be really careful around them and they feel bad for them. Like all of those normal feelings, but it can really impede someone's ability to get better if we're narrowing it. Like if we have that perspective going in, especially from a rehab perspective. And then the compare comparison bias. So like if somebody comes in, I'm going to compare them to like the last patient I saw or some, you know, so if I had, for example, we had a patient who had stage four head and neck cancer and had just had surgery and was about to go to radiation and chemo. 
And the therapist both avowed and discharged because, you know, he, he walked in and he was mobile, but they, they didn't have, I didn't set them up correctly to be able to say, Hey, like, you know, he's where he's headed. They had no idea of what that would look like or what they had within them to help him maintain what he already, what he had and improve through that treatment. So as the insults happen. And I think those are the things I think I would have changed for sure. The trial, the triage, and the education and support of the therapist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, reading it from the lens of a clinician and thinking about just being an outpatient OT, like for myself back in the day, none of these things surprised me. Like, yeah, I was totally that therapist who... I only had a couple cancer survivors on my caseload, and I remember each one feeling like I was in over my head and then probably discharging, only seeing them a couple times, I think, because of my own limitations. Like, yeah, just as a reaction of like, I don't know what to do next and probably are looking back now. I'm like, oh, I for sure discharged too early. So nothing surprised me, but it was seeing it all in this paper just how you laid it out was so compelling. I don't know. I just feel like we haven't read a paper like this where the barriers were so clear. How'd you move forward from this? Like what, what did this set in motion for you, this paper? You know, I spent a lot of time reflecting on this trial. Like I said, I still remember when the statistician and I were working together and she's just like, there's, there's nothing here. Like there's no improvement. <laughs> Everybody yeah, got worse. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, <laughs> like, that's not what I, you yeah. know? Yeah. And I, I knew it was, I had a feeling that's what was going to happen because, you know, I had been watching not only the enrollment of course, but also how many visits and the therapy sessions and stuff. So I had a, a strong sense that that was occurring, but to see it in black and white is in something that you believe and have seen, it was, it was hard. And I, I, it took me a while to write that discussion until finally it all sort of clicked. And I was like, this is what really happened. And these are the problems we need to fix for this to actually work for people. One of the things that stood with me for a long time, stuck with me for a long time, was how am I going to, how, if I were to redo the study somewhere else, because shortly after I moved to Colorado, how would I do it? Like, what would it look to make a significant improvement in the findings? And, you know, you can change your primary outcome measure, which I probably would and uh, here or there, but like, how can I really make a difference and make an impact or demonstrate that we're making an impact? And how would I study that? And how can I get everybody on board and that sort of thing? And so I spent a while thinking a lot about that and between that and I had a conversation with another one of my mentors, you know, in, in hindsight. And I remember I was presenting the, the, the trial and he turns to me and he's like, but Mackenzie, like, how are you ever going to take this nationwide? And I, I remember looking at him like, I don't know. <laughs> like, <Yeah. laughs> I was just, this is like the first thing. Like, why, I, why gotta answer that now? Like what? Like, I don't know. And that, you know, that question stuck with me and it's, you know, that's a great question. And I tried a number of different things when I was in Colorado, you know, should I focus on the intervention? Should I focus on 
really understanding the experience so I can help therapists better understand it. And, and then that's when I happened to run into the folks from Revital and I did a talk for them. And then we started talking about how we could work together. And then I ended up just leaving academia and, and working for them full time. And part of the reason is because they, they, they were set up in a way where I didn't have to study it. I didn't have to look at how the operations were done and how the, like, how the, like I could look at that from a, a science perspective, a researcher perspective, but I didn't have to own it. I didn't have to be the operator and the educator and the researcher and all of those components. And that I've always believed in team science. And so it made a lot of sense for me. Yeah. And it almost seems like from this original trial, there were so many barriers that you were like, or you look at that and you're like, we need a whole new model. Like this just model itself doesn't work. Yeah. And so what I perceive happening is you found a company that was like experimenting with a new model and went yeah. there. Is that That's true. Accurate? Yeah. yeah. You know, our the C our CEO had had cancer when he was younger. And so he's a cancer survivor himself. And he remembers that experience, as you can imagine, quite vividly. And I think between his experience and we had a, a successful program in, in Texas and the combination of those two brains together really created this program. And it's totally different from tradition. The way it's set up is different from the traditional model, although we work within it. So, but having people on a team that live and breathe this, that's truly our mission to figure it out has made all the difference, I think, and, and has allowed us to expand and grow in, in ways that a typical program would not. And that was the limitations of working in a cancer center in terms of we grew within the cancer center, but it's hard to lead that center, you know, so they can be really good, but all the people that are in the community don't get that or, or other communities, I mean, aren't able to access that. And I think between that and my training in health services research and looking at how services are used and what that looks like and how you study that pulled me out of the intervention specific study into that like population base, which is really what I'm interested in more and looking at how do we, cause I am interested in how do we study what we're already doing mm -hmm. and how, like in, in the therapy we are already providing to be able to improve upon it from there. But it definitely makes for a much more interesting <laughs> analysis, yeah. research, you know, design analysis. Yeah. Yeah. I just love I just see so consistently in your story this like determination of like, I'm going to do this, but this openness to like the next totally unexpected thing, like, and be able to hold that tension is, yeah, just incredible. And I think something that hits home for a lot of us as OTs where, yeah, we, I don't know, I think in general, we're good at like being determined, but also being open. And I love how your story embodies that. That gives us such a sense of like, the learnings and the up and downs that's kind of brought you to where you are now. I want to pick your brain specifically on behalf of clinicians who are working mm. in cancer rehab, either who are, who are doing that full-time or maybe mm -hmm. like me where I'm in a rural health setting and I 
would only see a cancer patient every now and then to, uh, yeah, I just want to hear like how you're thinking about current best practices and start with assessments. Like where have you gravitated towards and what assessments you see valuable, especially for those practicing clinicians? Yeah. So I have thought, I've thought a lot about this. I developed my own assessment through my dissertation and that taught me a lot about how measures are created and what what's a good measure, what are good questions, what are we trying to look at measure. And so I think what I would recommend strongly is the a global measure of quality of life and paired with an impairment or body specific or a region specific measure to get a better mm-hmm. picture of how it's impacting someone. So for example, for say a woman with breast cancer that may have had just had surgery and is going to go through radiation, I would prefer to have a global measure. Tell me how this is really impacting you as a person, how it's impacting your ability to participate in your life roles and work. If that's, you know, if you're uh, working and then also better understanding the the, the physical impairment. So like, tell me about your arm mobility and how that's specifically impacting. Because I think if you have one or the other, it's not, an, not enough. I think between those two patient reported outcome measures, and then if you could look at the performance-based measures, two of the performance-based measures that I've recommended for a number of years now are time dip and go and hand grip strength. Mm-hmm. But mostly because both of those are highly predictive of cancer outcomes. So mortality and morbidity. It's, it's not necessarily using hand grip strength to like actually look at like someone's just their grip and nothing beyond the, the wrist. But it really can be a good measure of how their strength and functioning overall. And so I, I like that measure. And even for the tied up and go, you know, we're really conservative with the cutoff score. So we, I recommend a cutoff score of 10 seconds. And it's not to say this person's at a fall risk at 10 seconds. It's a, but it it demonstrates that they may be at risk for that and for other poor cancer outcomes at large. And so that's, those are the red flags I want therapists to see. Hmm. Yeah. And I think that really drives home what you said earlier, where thinking about cancer rehab, it's a change in perspective, but using lots of the skills that we already have. Like I hear that and I'm like, oh yeah, I can do those assessments and think about those patient reported outcome measures. Like that's very in my wheelhouse and how I'm thinking about things anyway. And yeah, packaging it a little differently for us. And I think that, so I also, I'm a very big proponent of promise measures and that were developed by the NIH and free to clinicians to use for a number of reasons, but I do think using a consistent measure across diagnoses is really, really key for clinicians and for those who are studying what we do, because then you can see how people are doing across diagnoses and comparatively to the general population. And that gives you a different sense than just one specific measure that's only looking at, say, like the hand. You know what I mean? So I, th- I think together they offer the best picture. That's a, a little bit about assessment. When mm-hmm. you're thinking about treatment and intervention, 
What do you like now see as the foundation of cancer rehab? What's like the pillars in in your mind that we should be thinking about as clinicians? What I really gravitate towards, I'll put it this way, is the the ICF. So I'm still using that language in terms of understanding activity and participation and body systems and functions and the health condition, of course, and how the environment impacts. But laid upon that, I think the traditional DEETS model was a really good place to start in cancer rehab. And the DEETS model developed in the 70s looked at the phases of cancer, essentially, and how the rehab overlays that. So there's palliative, supportive, and, you know, end of life and rehab and and preventative. I mean, but the reason I like that concept is that what I tell people as a clinician is that I I never had to stick in one. So I was never like, we are going to do a prehab. It's going to be totally preventative. Recognizing that people aren't stuck in containers by themselves. So they're not so typically, you know, you get a woman like going back to the woman with breast cancer, she might be a tennis player and has had long standing tennis issues, you know, issues from tennis and she's not may not be at ground zero, right? Of like, okay, you are perfect today and then you're going to have surgery and something's going to be different. So sort of like recognizing that life situation and then also understanding that I may in mentally float in treatment between a palliative and rehab focus. So if someone is in their palliative phase in cancer treatment, it doesn't mean my rehab stops, but that I can go in between both of those theories or positions in order to best support somebody. And I, I have to be able to flex in that way so that I don't feel like, well, they've, they're not progressing. And so we need to discharge. It's more like how can I continue to help improve their and maintain their quality of life? And that may make my therapy look different. And I might be in a more of a palliative supportive role, but I'm still providing skilled therapy that is critical to patients support throughout their care. And so I, I think having that flexibility while recognizing the impact of the ICF, if you think about those, how they're all related, and then to just totally complicate matters. I don't know if this is helpful or not helpful, but I think we learned a lot about thinking of people and the environment we're in very transactional ways. Like everything is related among each other. And so I think that for me, that's helpful that there's always a relationships among us. So how we interact with patients, our communication how we support them in mental health will also impact their physical health, which will also impact their mental health and how we support the caregivers also supports them. And and thinking through that at that level, to me, those are the foundations of good quality cancer rehab for occupational therapists. And I, you know, I try to, that's really my soapbox, not to mean that it's to overcomplicate it with all these different theories, but it's that ability to problem solve with that mindset of we've, you know, you were trained in how to problem solve through routine and habit. That is still the same, whether the patient has cancer or something else, it's just that, and that mean that is maintained. And it's those theories of problem solving and helping people in that way that I think will, will really support 
any occupational therapist in cancer rehab. Yeah, you're describing that more like complex and nuanced mental model that's needed, which is lots of times an outpatient. It can feel like our patients are on a more linear trajectory, but layering in that kind of, I don't know, web of things that you're describing. I see how, yeah, that's the foundation and that's really helpful. And it's maybe a different way of thinking, but I think it aligns with what we're taught. I think of OTs and I'm like, I know they have that capacity. It's just different than other forms of outpatient care sometimes. Yeah. And I get that that's, you know, you're shaped by the soup you're in, right? And I, I, to- I totally, I've been there. I get it. I also think that even I may be thinking this way, but maybe the way I write my note is very much more linear based in terms of that type of thing. But when it comes down to it, the way I interact with patients is that way. And I encourage the, the therapist to do so. I remember when I taught at CSU, I heard a, you know, a lot of the students would say, it's common with any, I think, student in any program, right? Like, ah, oh, theory, like, just show me, what to, show me what to do. I mean, that's like the way we learn to, like, just show me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm not going to be thinking about this. And I think, and I was there too. I was absolutely there. I said it myself. And I kept telling them, like, if I, I can show you a skill, but it'll be gone, like, it may not work in five years, then what are you going to do? You're going to think back to how to think through these problems. And that's going to carry that will carry you throughout an entire career, not the skill. So or not the like physical skill, you know? Yep. Or mental models are everything. Yeah. How do you now think about the barriers to getting referrals, what was the number? Less than 9 to 15% of older adults receive referral to OTPT. What do we as therapists need to do differently? We need to show our value. We need to talk about our value. You know, I thought when I first saw that number and I was – I. I mean, I want to say, so I've been an OT now for over 20 years. I want to say the first 15 years, I was like, the doctor's got to give us referrals. And I kept pounding my fist on the table. And then I think I did that trial and I a couple of other papers and I thought, oh my gosh, I think we're a part of the problem. And it terrified me. <laughs> like, ah, I never looked in the mirror, you know? And I, we are a big part of the problem and also a big, a huge part of the solution. I believe that my new focus is that within this is really talking about and demonstrating the value we provide. And it can be from writing a huge paper to having a a patient next to you talking through the patient reported outcomes and saying, you know, let's talk about your goals and what do you want to be able to do and what's important to you and what matters most and how can we work on, and that's what we'll work on. That will demonstrate the value at that level. And that will speak, that will grow. If you, I really believe that if you provide good quality care and connect with your patients in that way and collaborate on goals and collaborate on where they're at that day, that will build. That will build over Mm -hmm. time because people word of mouth, they will tell their doctors about you. And I, I think that will 
be a huge part of the problem. And then, you know, I think administratively, we need to figure out how it works in the system. So, you know, how I, I do think there's value to having cancer survivors in regular clinics, you know, it's just, it's like any other, it's not like any other condition, but it, in some ways it's helpful to have everybody come together, getting working on something. There's something about that like group. So I don't think it needs to be like separated, like too separate or whatever. I, I do think that it can be within the regular model as long as we're describing what we're doing in a way that people can understand the value of what we do. That I think will make the biggest change. And administratively working through that system in terms of getting them on our schedule and trying to figure out how to decrease the time from referral to sitting in front of you. You know, I mean, I think there's been studies that have shown that if you have a referral of any sort, rehab or something else, and the longer it waits, the less likely people are to go and find value in it. Mm -hmm. Same is true for us. Another thing you talked about was the need for cancer rehab specific training. Mm -hmm. And my questions around that are, where can we go now to get that training? And how do we make that training more accessible to more people? Yeah, that's a, that's a, that is a great question. And that is a, I wish I had a better answer. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm asking you the hard questions. I know, <laughs> I know. It's good though. It's, you know, it's limiting, limited. There's not a lot of places to get good cancer rehab education. There is a place in in Colorado that gives cancer rehab training. And there's a couple of places online that give classes. AOTA has an oncology badge, I think. ACRM is a great a group that has, just during conference, we have one or two streams of cancer rehab related content. And of course, you know, we're vital. We have our education, but unfortunately right now it's just internal for people that are a part of select. You know, I think that is, I was just in a meeting actually last night with a number of people across the country thinking about how to improve palliative care, the the way that palliative care is given and understood and advocate for it. And education came up again. How are we going to educate therapists to do palliative care and do it well? And see patients. There's like, you know, there's always this tension. And I'm, ho I'm hopeful that as the awareness of cancer rehab grows, as the survivors that are able to access rehab call for more of it, there'll be more opportunities in the future for that. I mean, and, you know, when I was a clinician years ago, it wasn't, we didn't, you know, I, I mean, if you think about it, we've come a long way. Right when I started working in cancer was right when we were just starting to learn that like exercise is okay, we think. And I think we can massage people and like do some manual work. I think like it was just the beginning of that. And I think people can actually move after they have cancer. So, and that's really only 20 years ago. So I feel like it's, we're about to hit another momentum where we'll build more training, but it's a huge need for sure. Yeah, and I think for all of us, we're living 
through such a period of change and that change is going to continue to accelerate. And the conversation that we're having today reminds me like, this change is good and it's needed. Like what we were doing when you did this trial, that wasn't working well. Like that had to change. We need new business models. We need new ways of educating ourselves. Everything needs to change. Like, and that change is going to be hard to ride through. Yeah. It's hard as an individual to ride those waves, but it's happening for a good reason. And I think like zooming out big picture and thinking of it in that way is helpful. And I think just like, I'm thinking again of your personal qualities of like, got to stay determined, but also open to all these new things that are going to come for us. Yeah. You know, and if you think about, I mean, there's, there's days when it's, it's so big, it's hard to, you know, I'm like, what do you know, where do I go? What do I do? And, uh, and I just keep reminding myself, like just say one step forward, you know, just a little bit here, a little bit there. I feel that way about just the healthcare system at large. I think part of the issue with referrals and access is just the fragmented the healthcare system we're in. Our EMR is not the same as their EMR. That's not the same as the oncologist EMR that doesn't talk, you know, like all of that is is putting a a huge pressure on patients to figure it out and be their own advocate, unfortunately. And so I think we need to be even louder as therapists about not only like who we are and what we do and how we can help, but how like the how to, how to access this. Here's the phone number you call. You don't get an answer. We, I'm sorry, call again or whatever it is, like give multiple options of people. I really really hope we keep telerehab because I think there's some good evidence behind telerehab. I think that can open up access for a number of people, not just cancer survivors, but we need payment for it, consistent payment for it and good payment for it. Because if it is quality therapeutic care, it should be paid at an equal level to if I, if I was treating you um, in the clinic. And when it's used appropriately, I think it could really open up a lot of doors for people that don't have access to our services today. Hmm. Yeah. We've touched on so many big picture things. I think this conversation to me like has raised more questions (laughs) than maybe we started with, but we're at our rapid fire time if you're up for heading into those. Okay, let's do it. I'm always good at like getting even more questions started. So obviously, so yeah, finish this sentence for me. Occupational therapy is helping individuals to problem solve the routines and habits, the mundane of life and what occupies our time. And I think occupational therapy is a gift. Mm, yeah. Yeah, it really is. And I love talking to people about occupational therapy and hearing that over and over, that consistent yeah, gift that we have. What's one moment in therapy that you've been a part of that you'll never forget? The patients I saw at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center are the ones that stick with me the most. And I would say the the story I go back to or the the moment I would say I go back to often is 
working with a four-year-old child hours before he passed with his parents, allowing him to play and engage with them and how I worked to remove myself as much as I possibly could in the situation so they could just engage was an incredibly powerful moment for me that will stay with me forever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we've been, um, that makes me feel really emotional. We've been talking about cancer rehab today from this like analytical, what's our mental model, but so that just drives home. It's so personal. I bet everyone who's listening, uh, their lives have been touched by, yeah, cancer somehow. And yeah, we know the needs there. Yeah. And just, you know, I think that's the gift is just, I remember walking into people's room and being like, you know, I'm the, I'm here to help. Like, what do you want to do? What matters? That's what we're here to work on today. And a lot of the time it was the combination of movement and listening. That was, I think, possibly the biggest impact I could have made in someone's life. And that was just, that's, that's the thing that where I'm like, I, this, I was able to, to help a certain number of people in my career, but I, ha- I have to give back in a bigger way so other more people can have that kind of experience and support. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm so eager to support this movement because I'm like, every ca- cancer patient needs an OT. Like, how do we get there? What? That's so obvious. I know there's lots of barriers, but I'm like, that's where we need to go. Yeah. We've talked about so many things today. What's like the thought and takeaway you want to leave people with? Mm-hmm. You know, I think that in occupational therapy, I mean, in cancer rehab for sure, but that there's always hope. Don't lose hope. Like, mm-hmm. I feel like there's there's always another there's a reason why I think we learn different things. I mean, I remember you asked me what you have done differently. If you thought about the trial a different way or done this or done that. And yeah, I have a list, but if I had not learned those lessons early on, I would be repeating the same mistakes and they're so painful in the moment. And, um, Mm -hmm. but, uh, but what I always get back to you is the the patients I saw. And then I know family members myself and of people that I, that I know of that just have really struggled with cancer and I know and haven't had the support, the extra layer that we can provide. And I just, I feel like if nothing else, I got to take another step forward today to achieve that mission. And I, I hope the people on this podcast that are listening feel similarly. I mean, I don't think you need to do it a hundred percent of your career, but my I am sure someone with cancer will walk into your clinic or to the hospital or wherever you work and, and just keeping that in mind and talking them through that and supporting them. I think that is a step forward. So I think everybody can, can, can help. Well, Mackenzie, this has just been such a helpful conversation on so many levels. And I'm so thankful to you for the time. And then also just for the work you're doing and, that determination and that openness and um, yeah, leading us forward in this really important area. 
Thank you so much. It was, I really enjoyed myself, <laughs> enjoyed talking about it, reflecting and, and being here with you. And I really appreciate you inviting me on your podcast. Wow, you all, this was such a compelling conversation, both to have the opportunity to hear the personal story behind this research and also just to sit with the gravity of the needs within this population and the opportunities out there for improved care. I definitely encourage you to check out our show notes. We'll have links to some recent research by Dr. Pergolotti and I'll link to some of the things we talked about today within the OT Potential Club for members in there. You can also use our assessment search to find assessments that can be used for adults with cancer. And we actually have two documentation examples in there as well, just so you can see really concretely what holistic cancer care can look like for this population. And if you do already provide cancer rehab, I definitely encourage you to consider joining our OT directory. We have cancer rehab as a tag. This is a way for patients who are looking for these services to find you. And as a final note, remember, if you do want to earn that continuing education credit for today, you can sign into the club, log in, take our tests, and we will generate a certificate for your time today. And as always, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. I hope this podcast helps you broaden your knowledge, tweak your practice, and stay evidence-based. Take care, and we'll talk with you next time.